The reason that it's so difficult is there are here contained many phrases and words which are nowhere else in the Bible and nowhere else in the ancient world. They don't have any combination or parallel. They're outside of the language almost. It's really amazing. The theology is beyond the language. It's rich and deep and fathomless. You could mine these hills until he returns and you would not gather all of the gold. And that could be said about many books in the Bible, but none more than the book of Hebrews. If we say that Romans is the peak of the New Testament's theology, which I believe that it is, Hebrews is the grandest picture of the person of Jesus Christ in the Bible. It also stands alone from all the other books because it itself is not a letter in its truest form. This... And, and this may help you. Sometimes people think guys like me and, and others are deep and hard to understand and follow. And man, he carries and covers a lot of stuff. And, and that, maybe that's true. But I want you to know this. What we will study from now until we're finished, I don't know how long it'll take, was one sermon. This was not a letter. In the original, there was no title. The title has been supplied. The complete title has been supplied. It did not say, like Paul's letters, the letter to the church at Ephesus or the letter to those gathered at Corinth. The very first words on the ancient parchments are, long ago, it is oratory at its highest height. It is a sermon. If you read this sermon with expression, or if, like I've seen it done, it is done from memory from the original, it takes 45 minutes. If you follow the outline, there are four major themes. It is a sermon. It was then captured and written down for the people it was preached for. Because I believe the pastor wasn't with them. That's why he preached it. And then it was recorded. And it was sent to them on parchment. And the additions at the end, the, what, what feels like the close of a letter, was added. This is a book that stands alone in the canon. There's nothing like it. We don't know it. Anything like it in the ancient world. My confidence is not in my preparation. You say, how long have you prepared for this? Well, in 2007, I began to study the book of Hebrews. And then I began a doctoral work on the subject of Hebrews, which is Christological preaching from all of the Scripture. And Hebrews was my constant companion from 2007 until today. There has been no week that has passed that I have not been in the book of Hebrews. But my confidence is not in my preparation. My confidence is not in my ability to teach you these things. If that's what I was trusting in, I would sit down and we would find something else to do. My confidence and my assurance is based on the ability and the power of the Holy Spirit to transform your life from the living, breathing Word given to us in Hebrews. 
and my confidence is furthermore founded and resting on the completed. So we have to answer some introductory questions this morning. I want to move rather quickly and uh, try to cover a lot of information here. So get your pen out if you want it. As you probably know, there is no definitive answer about who wrote, what human author wrote Hebrews. Origen, one of the early church fathers, made this statement. God only knows the truth. That's probably a good way to end this section about the author. God only knows who wrote this. But I want to uh, maybe give some assessment of this. I want to try to maybe wrestle it down to a couple of options for you. I'm not going to go into all of the arguments about the authorship. That would take more than today. But I want to summarize them for you. They fall under four main proponents. There are four people that have been proposed as authors throughout church history from the very first century until today. First of all, there are those who consider it to be the work of Paul. This was first put forward by Clement of Rome. In the, in the beginning of the second century, Clement said that this was a sermon which Paul preached. And then it was recorded for us by Luke. So it was spoken in Aramaic and it was recorded in Greek. And that's why we have a stylistic difference. That's why we don't recognize Paul when we read Hebrews is because it's really Luke that's writing. He's writing in his language, in his vernacular, in his way of expression the sermon which Paul preached in Aramaic. A.W. Pink probably gives the best modern defense of this position that I've ever read. A second candidate for authorship is Barnabas, the associate of Paul. Barnabas was put forward by Tertullian in 225. Barnabas would fit here. He was a Levite, and he would have understood the Levitical priesthood as well as anyone in the New Testament. And so it's very possible could be him. Harnack, Adrian Harnack put forward Priscilla. And he says the reason we don't have the author is because it was a woman and therefore would not have been accepted. That Priscilla recorded what we have as Paul taught the intricacies of the Old Testament in a Christ-centered manner. And then Priscilla recorded these thoughts and it was passed on from there. All of these have convincing proofs, but there's one which has risen to the top for me as the author, and I believe this, this is my opinion, and now I'll tell you how certain I am of it. I've changed my mind three times over the course of these years. I've vacillated between two possibilities. I originally believed that what we were dealing with was Apollos. Luther put forward this uh, clearly. It was believed before that. There is some evidence that even the early church fathers believed this. But Luther was the first to formulate the idea and get it down for us, okay? And so that was where I was. And then as I studied, I really fell in love with Paul. And I thought, this is him. This is, this is Paul because it's late in his life. He's getting ready to die. And he's, he's, God is letting him do one last thing. And that is, preach to his countrymen according to the flesh that they may be converted. Or they may be strengthened in their conversion and not fall back into the throes of Judaism. And then, just recently, in the last week or so, I have gone back to Apollos. <laughs> so how certain am I? Eh. Maybe by the time we're done, I'll be back with Paul. I don't know. But 
I put it forward as a policy. This is why, and these are not original to me, there are several things that have caused me to make this change to a policy. First of all, I want to call your attention to Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. Let's begin in verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us, you notice his inclusion of himself, by those who heard. This tells me, doesn't take a genius to figure it out, that whoever it is that's preaching this sermon, writing this letter, is not a first-generation Christian. He's a second-generation Christian. Apollos would seem to fit this uh, story. Not Paul. Paul received, as Galatians 1 tells us, his gospel directly from the Lord. And you say, so that sums it up. It's not Paul. Yeah, but wait. But wait, because if... Clement is right, and Paul preached the sermon, and Luke wrote the sermon. It is possible that Luke included himself, the author, in the us statement, not Paul. Now, I don't want to get too technical, but that's possible. I don't think it's true, but it's possible. I believe it's Apollos. First, because of Hebrews 2, 3 through 4. Second, because the language is not at all like Paul. It's not like him in any way, and I don't believe that because he was speaking, he somehow was different from when he was writing. I know that when I write, I write a little more eloquently. But trust me, it's not that much more eloquent. Some of you, have, most of you have received a letter from me or an email from me, and you would say, yeah, I agree. In other words, I don't think when we're talking, we're one way, and we're writing, we're completely the other way. And, hear this, it seems it goes the reverse order, doesn't it? Now, this is just human reasoning. This has nothing to do with what the canon says all right so just hear this when you speak you're more careless and less lofty than when you write and what those who argue for this say is that Paul is more intricate in this Hebrews letter than he was in his writings it's possible maybe his mind worked that way but it doesn't seem to fit the rest of humanity the rest of us write rather eloquently and speak rather dumbly that was a joke. I know you English people, dumbly is not a word, right? And it was for the point to emphasize that we often speak and misspeak when we're just talking. It seems to me that if Luke was recording this, and to be inspired, it must be Paul's work here, not a rendition of Paul's work only. It seems to me that it would have been the other way, not higher but lower in his grammar. Okay, so finally, the church, the early church, would seem to be strangely silent. I know there are some, Clement being one, who makes some early hypothesis about who it is, but the church is silent early about Hebrews, which indicates to me it's not an apostle. If it was an apostle, they would say it blank, blank statement, straightforwardly. This is the work of the apostle Paul. It would have made it easy to accept Hebrews. Hebrews went through many rings of acceptance. It took longer to be received into the canon because it wasn't certain who the author was. I believe it was Apollos. And I believe this also based on what we know about Apollos. Hold your place in Hebrews and turn back to Acts chapter 18 where we find Apollos in the scriptures here. Okay? Acts 18 verse 24. <clears throat> 
Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man. You get that? His speech was high and lofty. Competent in the scriptures. What does that mean? He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He knew it inside and out. And being fervent in spirit. When we get into this letter, trust me, you will say, whoever this is, is fervent in spirit. I mean, burns hot with an intimacy for the Lord that is unknown to others, unequaled and unsurpassed by others. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. What was he doing? He was taking the Old Testament and he was He was expositing and expounding and teaching and exhorting from the Old Testament Jesus Christ to his peers. That's what we find him doing in Acts in the the city of Ephesus. He taught accurately. Precisely is another way we could say that. Hebrews is anything, it's precise. Though he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, They took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They said, brother, you've got it right. But there's been a final word spoken. This Jesus you're speaking of is not simply the next Old Testament prophet. He is Jesus, the Son of God. And they began to tell him, I'm certain they began to tell him, Intricate details of what the apostles had shared with them about his resurrection and his appearances over the course of 40 days and his ascension back into the heavens. Apollos is having his mind further permeated with the truth of Christ by these loved and beloved disciples. And when he, he, wished, he, he wished to cross Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he, great, he was greatly helped. He greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews. You notice what he's doing here. His work is eloquent, it's lofty, it's precise, it's centered in the Old Testament, it's an exposition of Christ, and now he's refuting the Jews. I believe he's refuting the error to go back into Judaism, to take Christ and try to stay in the outward forms. That's what he's doing He's powerfully refuting the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So he had an accurate understanding of Jesus early. And Priscilla and Aquila added to that accurate understanding that Jesus isn't just a good prophet. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And he immediately leaves and goes to Achaia and begins to argue publicly for the divinity and the the, the office of king in Jesus. Christ, Messiah, promised one. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, now we see him there in Achaia, in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Now Paul gets to Ephesus and there's already some believers. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism, which tells me whose disciples are these. They are Apollos' disciples. He's being faithful to what he's understood and what he's known while he's at Ephesus. Now he's in Corinth. Paul is trailing him, comes in behind him to Ephesus and says, wait, you people believe. Who told you? And what have you been baptized into? We've been baptized into John. We don't even know there is a spirit that is to baptize us. 
And Paul said in verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There was about 12 men in all. So we have the account in the canon of Paulus' ministry. And I want to say to you and commend to you that the reason, primarily I believe that the work of Hebrews is Apollos' is because of what I read in Acts 18 through the early part of 19. I believe this, but I'm not willing to die for this. And I'm fully convinced I may get to heaven and Paul may tap me on the shoulder and say, that was me. Okay? So we have this discussion about the author. And, and you see where I stand here. The recipients. Who received this originally? Again, we're not absolutely certain about the specific group Hebrews was addressed to. Some have believed that it was sent to Jews in Palestine. That they were beginning to face the persecution of, of Rome and they were beginning to waver back into the temple worship and that the writer or the preacher is trying to exhort them not to fall back. I don't believe this to be the case. Why? Because in our letter or our sermon, he's going to say you have not resisted to the point of death. That would mean, and that, by the way, that death in Jerusalem began... Soon after Christ's ascension, James is killed very early in church history. So if it's the church, Jews in the church at Palestine or in Jerusalem, it would seem the author's uninformed about the persecution they've already faced. He's saying you haven't died and there are people dying. So I don't think it's in Palestine that these Jews lived. Some have believed that it was sent to Jews that, and Gentiles who lived in Asia Minor that were worshiping in the synagogues because that's where the first churches often met, either in a home or in the synagogue. And so this one is writing to them and saying, listen, don't get caught up in the external religion of the Jews. It's simple. It's easy. Now you say, why would they go back to Judaism? Because Rome accepted Judaism as a true religion. They tolerated it. Remember, Rome had a pantheon of gods. And they just said, okay, these Jews, they worship, they're monotheists, they're kind of dum-dums, untrained, shepherding kind of people. Just leave them alone. Their religion is beneficial to us. We'll just keep them around. But Christianity was hated by the Romans. And so the persecution began to come on these, supposedly, by this theory, these people in Asia Minor from the Romans, and they were beginning to say, well, you know what? We could go back into Judaism and just be incognito Christians. We could believe in Jesus to do the outward external worship, not talk about Jesus in the public square. And if we don't do that, the Romans will leave us alone. I don't buy that. I don't, I don't feel that here, that that's really what's going on. And I think there's a better, better explanation. Still other scholars have suggested that the audience was made up only of Gentiles. This is the least appealing to me. There's not enough explanation about the Old Testament here. The Old Testament is throughout this book used and preached from. But it is not, it is not enough to convince newly converted Gentiles. And furthermore, why would he be warning them about falling back into Judaism if they're simply Gentiles? It would seem they would fall back into paganism, not into Judaism. So I don't receive this as a writing or preaching to just Gentiles. So what do I believe, you might ask? Well, turn to Hebrews 13, and though we don't have a final answer, I think we have some help here. Remember, I think Apollos did this, 
He's in the circle of Paul. He's in the ministerial circle of Paul. Okay? So he has a lot of the same companions. Verse 22, this is the attached, after the benediction of the sermon, the attached greeting. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. So right there we see what this is. This is a word of exhortation. For I have written to you briefly, okay, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So Timothy's been released. Timothy was a pastor at Ephesus. And he's released and plans to go to Rome. And whoever's doing this is going with him from Ephesus. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all or with all of you. Now... What do I believe about this ending? I believe it tells us some clues again, not definitively, but I believe what it's saying is that Apollos in Ephesus has seen Timothy released from prison. Many have come to visit Ephesus from Rome, and now they're sending their greetings back to Rome with uh, this communication. Those who have come from Italy are sending their greetings to you. Okay? And so the preacher here has preached this sermon. It's been recorded and written down. Now he adds his greeting. And he says, Timothy's released. He and I will come to you hopefully soon. Who's in Rome? Paul's in Rome. Paul's in Rome. He's already in prison by the time Hebrews is here for us, I believe. And so they're writing in there and they're encouraging the believers in Rome. These are Jewish believers, not Gentile believers. It's a house church. Notice how he says, greet your leaders and all the saints I believe the reason it says leaders is because it was a small congregation within the larger citywide fellowship. He's writing to a specific congregation within the church at Rome, which is made up of Jews. Why are they beginning to waffle in their, in their uh, understanding? The date will help us with that. I believe in the introduction here is coming to an end. If we are not certain of the author and not certain of the first audience. We certainly can't die on the hill of when it was written, but the range given to us by scholars is between the year 50 and 90. 40 years. I mean, you know, it was almost 2,000 years ago, so it's pretty, pretty narrow window, right? It's not narrow enough, not nearly narrow enough. Although some would argue for a later date, I don't find it possible. There is an event which occurs in 70 A.D. which is not mentioned on the pages here which I find impossible to have gone without notice. If you were preaching a sermon from the Old Testament to Jews who had had their temple and their city completely ransacked, raised, and burned to the ground, you're telling me you wouldn't say to them something in accord with the destruction of their temple? You would never even mention it? That seems very out of touch to me. In other words, 70 A.D. is the late date, the latest date, early part of 70 A.D. is the latest date I think we can go. I would argue for an earlier date, 60 to 63 A.D. Why? Because, again, he says the persecution has begun, but it has not led to death yet. He says that late in the sermon. Nero, who was on the throne during the early 60s, would be the most vehement opposer of Christ and his, his Christian followers of all of the Romans. He beheaded them. He hung them. He put them as torches in his garden. In other words, he stuck them, he stuck them on stakes of wood wrapped in tar and burned them for his entertainment parties. 
He fed them the wild beast. He was ruthless. And I think this is the persecution which is coming. It hasn't gotten there yet, but it's coming. So I, I argue for a 60 to 63 date. That puts Paul near the end of his life. And it puts Apollos and Timothy there in Ephesus writing back to the Jews gathered in Rome, encouraging them to hold on to their faith. Do not go back in the face of persecution. What is the theme of this sermon? It's one statement. I'll give it to you. And I'm going to say it over and over again in the coming weeks. God's, God's final revelation of Himself in His Son is supreme to all past revelation. And this revelation is an anchor for our soul during the day of persecution that causes our faith to persevere. The theme of these 13 chapters is simply this. God is and God has spoken finally through His Son. He has spoken so that our faith can hold in the day of suffering and we will not turn back to dead religion. God has spoken. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Today we'll look at verse 1 primarily in the beginning of verse 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. When it says by His Son, do you notice something missing? Maybe not, but it's common in the New Testament for it to say, by the Son. Do you notice that the is not there? By, in the Greek it says, by son. God spoke in times past in various ways. And the original says, by prophets in this last time, by son. Now that's a strange way to write in English or preach in English, but it's not in their day. We're going to bring that out now. If we look, we see first of all that God is. We see that God is. That's the very first thing I want to call your attention to. Here in this very first verse, we see no defense for the existence of God. No apologetic to say, God is real. This is why you should believe in God. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. This is the Hebrew way of doing things. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here we find the same style statement. Long ago, in various ways, at various times, God spoke. It leaves the listener to say, what God? Who is He? How do we know He exists? I can't see Him. Those are modern problems. Listen to me. You may be sitting here within the sound of my preaching saying, I don't believe there is a God. May I just politely say that's your problem? And I don't mean to be a smart aleck, but I, I just want to tell you, God's not concerned with your unbelief in that way, your denial of His existence. God exists from all of eternity. And He doesn't bother Himself with proving His existence. He simply is. The Bible everywhere just simply says, God is. It's what I call, and what many call, presuppositional apologetics. In other words, it's a fancy way to say there's some things not able to be proved through logic. They're, accepted, ex they're simply accepted by faith. God is. So you're sitting there and you say, I don't believe in God. And I say, that's because you don't have faith. 
You say, well, I know I don't have faith because I don't believe there's a God. It's kind of circular, preacher. See, I got you in a circular argument. I give you that. I believe in circular arguments. Every argument at its very basis, which is primal, which is authoritative, which is final, which is ultimate, is circular. Every scientist who's ever graced the planet Earth believes in circular arguments. As much as they try to say they don't, they do. Why? Because when they get done talking, they say, the universe is. Well, where did it come from? It just is. When did it start? I don't know, about four trillion years ago, but I'm not sure. How can you be sure it really exists? Because I live in it. Well, that's circular. That's circular reasoning. You don't have any proof for how it started. Any real proof. You have theories. See, they're circular in their reasoning also. So you may be sitting in this audience saying, Hey, I've, I've gone beyond the need for a God. I don't need God. I just know that the universe has always existed and it came about by natural processes, uh, protons and eons and all these ions bumping together and creating this gooky substance which crawled up one day out of a pit and had some life to it and then developed into higher forms of life. I just believe that. I think that's plausible. And I want to say to you, the only plausible answer to the beginning of the universe is that God is. And then to accept Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or to accept that God is a communicator and He is speaking. So you say, so there is a God, good for you. I believe there's a God, but I'm kind of agnostic about it. I'm not an atheist, I'm just an agnostic preacher. I don't know who He is, He hasn't talked to me. And I say, again, sorry, respectfully, that's your problem. So how can it be? I say, because God has spoken. The two points of today's sermon is God is and God has spoken. How has He spoken? Romans 1 verse 18 says that God spoke through His created order. He told you He exists because you look around and there's no other plausible, real explanation for all of this. Something big created this big universe. It's too orderly, it's too refined, it's too much, like a, a, too much like a masterpiece to simply have washed up one day out of a slime pit. It had to have had a beginning, and that beginning had to have begun with a creator, not just out of chance. Hebrews 1 is a Hebrew, is a Hebrew expression of this very fact that God has spoken. Again, he doesn't spend a lot of time proving his point, he just simply states it. Long ago... At many times, in many ways, God spoke. God spoke. And how did He speak? Well, at various times He spoke. By this, we're to believe that God spoke in the Old Covenant. He spoke clearly. He spoke not just in His creation, but He spoke through His prophets. He spoke in various ways. How did He speak? He spoke through direct revelation. In other words, the voice of God was heard by man. We have these recorded for us. Abraham heard the voice of God. Moses on Sinai heard the voice of God. Our first father, Adam, heard God in the garden. These were all verbal revelations. God directly to man. But that's not the only way. There are many ways. He spoke to his people through visions. Jacob laying at Penuel 
saw a vision and God communicated to him. Moses, Moses was communicated in another way. He saw a burning bush. The people of Israel were communicated in another way. They saw a cloud and a pillar of fire by night. They saw the many miracles which God attested himself to. Isaiah was caught up into a vision of heaven in the throne room. Ezekiel saw a wheel spinning with wheels under it. All of this is to say God spoke in various ways at various times. But it is to say God is and God has spoken. God has spoken. And you notice here, if you just look at this, that God has not only spoken, but He's spoken intimately to us. I believe that the book of Hebrews is as close as we get to what you, you, what you find in Luke 24. Now you read that story, and I read that story, and you say, I wish I could have been on the road of, to Emmaus with those disciples. You've said that, haven't you? And I wish I could have heard Jesus telling about himself from the Old Testament. I wish I would have had that. Hebrews is as close as you get. Because you see, the clear speaking of God through creation and through the prophets in our verse is said in verse 2 that now He has spoken to us by Son. Not just by prophets, in prophets, through prophets, but by Son, in Son, through Son He has spoken. And it's just like what happened on that. I believe that. As you study Hebrews, you read Hebrews, you think about Hebrews, you begin to grasp the fact that the whole of the Old Covenant is about Jesus. When Jesus met them on the way to Emmaus, it would have sounded something like the sermon that we have for us in Hebrews. And so we don't have to long for it. We've got it, and we can study it, and we can tear it to pieces and shreds and apply it into our lives. In these previous times God spoke, but look at verse 2, but in these last days, eschatu, not eschaton, Eschaton is the Greek word that means last days or last things. This is a Greek word not meaning exactly those very last days, like the day of judgment, but rather a period of time, these days, these last days. What is he saying? Now, we're going to get a little technical at the end here. Hang with me, it'll mean something to you, especially as we go forward. I'm laying groundwork today. And I'll lay a lot more next week and a lot more the next week. And we'll have to build a foundation here, okay? But it's going to be worth it, trust me. So when he says he's spoken, but in these last days, what it, that phrase, the last days, is a way that the New Testament presents itself in continuity and contrast to the old. The New Testament writers have two epics. Only two epics in their New Testament era. They see a past time, the Old Covenant, and they see these last days, and they see the day to come, the day of the Lord. Paul talks this way always. God worked in the Old Covenant in our Father's days, made promises, types, shadows were laid down. Now Jesus has come and we are in these last days. And there is that great day coming. In other words, for 
the New Testament, there seems to be simply the day we live in post-Christ till He comes again and then the time that lasts forever after that. There's only two epics in the New Testament era. There's the Old Testament, New Testament, and eternity. That's the way they comprise time. And this is what our author is doing. He's saying we are in these last days. Why are these days different from those days in the Old Covenant? Because He has spoken by His Son. Not by a prophet, by His very Son. The distinguishing, the dividing mark of all history is the coming, the incarnation, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That day, these days, and the final day is coming. Eternity. That's the way the book of Hebrews unfolds. Truly, Hebrews is a work on eschaton, on the last days, these last days. He's assuring these Christians that God hasn't forgotten them. He spoke to your fathers. He's spoken to you in Christ, and He's continuing to speak to you in this day through His Son. But I want to say something else about this. It's not only in continuity, but it's in contrast. These words allow us a contrast also. Notice the conjunction is but. You saw that, didn't you? Allah in the Greek means but. It's the conjunction. And this is what, now that's important. Conjunctions are always important. The little words mean the most often in your study. Don't skip them. He didn't say long ago in many ways, many times, God spoke to our fathers by prophets. And in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. He didn't say that. He said, but in these last days. So it's not only that this writing and our age is in continuation of the old covenant, but there's a contrast. This time is different from that time. Now, if you can't understand that, you can't understand the book of Hebrews. Because all of this sermon is going to say, you see this type? You see the angels? You notice them? They were beautiful. They were exalted. They're the highest of creation. I tell you, Christ is greater than them. You see Moses? He was the supreme leader of his day. He was the mediator of a covenant. He went and met with God face to face. I tell you, Jesus is greater than Moses. He saw God face to face, and He has given us a new covenant in His and by His blood. You see the Aaronic priesthood? I tell you, Jesus is greater than the Aaronic priesthood. That's the continuity, discontinuity of the Bible. If you're not comfortable with that kind of talk, if you flatten everything down and said it's all the same, you're going to miss Hebrews. There is continuity, but there's also discontinuity. By that I mean the but. He spoke to our fathers plainly, clearly through the prophets, but now His Son. And it's also finalization. We have here a final word. Now I'm tied to our scripture reading and we'll be done. You say, Harold, why would you read? have them read Luke 9, 8 through 18? Because remember what happened in our parable? Jesus speaking to the Pharisees the religious leaders of his day, said to them, there was a great man and he planted a vineyard and he left his tenant, his tenant farmers to keep it. And then he went to get his pay. Upon his return, they cast out his messengers and then they beat his messengers and then he sent to them his son thinking 
Surely they won't reject my son. And when they saw him coming, they said, This is the heir. We shall kill him and have his inheritance for ourselves. And they took him. Now listen to the exact wordage. They took him. He came to the vineyard and they took him, this son. And they cast him outside. And they harassed him and they killed him. And I tell you, God came and, ki- and took retribution on those tenant farmers. And he took from them their inheritance and gave it to another. The Pharisees were shocked. They did not want to hear it. Why? Because he was talking about them. He said, listen, Israel is a vineyard. God has planted her. And he has left to tend that vineyard, his people. And he has sent to his people many messengers saying the message of the gospel. And they have beaten and oppressed and killed them. We know that from the Old Testament, don't we? And God at the last days sent his son saying surely they will receive him. But he was not received by his own. John says he came unto his own and his own received him not. What did they do to him? They tried him falsely. They beat and persecuted him and they took him outside the camp and they hung him and they killed him. They rejected him, thinking in doing this they were worshiping and serving God. That's what Peter says. And God said, I now reject you, my tenant farmers, and I will take my vineyard and give it to another. What the writer of Hebrews wants us to know is that in this last day, God has spoken through His Son. And though the Jews have rejected Him, you can receive Him. Though the Jews have lost their inheritance, you can have the inheritance. Though the Jews have now no king, you can have the king. Though the Jews have no priestly system, you can have a priestly system. And the punctuation of this sermon will happen a few years later when all of Jerusalem is destroyed. Can you imagine the Jews in Rome who were tempted to go back to temple-type worship, externals worship, and when 70 A.D. happens, some of them were still living, they get the report, God has judged Jerusalem. He has crushed it. He has raised it. He has burned it. And He has destroyed the temple. Not one stone has been left on another. There is nowhere to offer sacrifice. There is no priestly garment. There is no one to go before God for the people. The people who heard this sermon said, oh yes there is His name. It's Jesus. Oh how we're glad the anchor held our faith so that we didn't go back into that dead religion. Oh how we're thankful God spoke to us in His Son. Oh, how grateful we are that we are part of a new and better covenant that is not passing away. Oh, we are in a kingdom that is shaken yet once more and then it will last forever. We have come not to Sinai, but to Mount Zion. We come not by the blood of Abel, but by the blood of the Son. We come not to hear prophets talk, but God Himself in the flesh speak. And I tell you, Grace Fellowship, that's where we're going. We're going there. We're going to study it, look at it, tear it apart, and apply it to life 
So I want to close with these applications. One, if you are here and you do not believe, I pity you. I said it last week, I'll say it again. I pity you because when he shakes this kingdom yet one more time, you will fall. Because the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense has been laid. His name is Jesus and you're stumbling over him and I tell you, he will crush you on that day. And secondly, I want to call you to believe. I'm telling you, he's been offered the perfect one has been offered and there will be no new offerings. There will be no new revelation. There will be no second communication. He is the completion of everything. Come to Him. And thirdly, if you're in Him, treasure Him. Go to your Old Testament and begin to study and see Him for who He really is. And hold on to Him as the completer and the perfecter of your faith. He is our high priest. Let's pray. Father, as we close our time in your word and in introduction and in 